Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, to hear from your word. Father, you have said in your word that you will make yourself known among the nations. And we thank you, Father, for that. We thank you that the promise that you made so many years ago uh, to make Christ known has caused us to know you. Father, I pray that you would help us to not take the gospel for granted, but remind us that it is because of what Christ has done and who he is that we are here together this morning, that our eternity is secure in you, that all who are in Christ Jesus are, uh, have a foundation that cannot be shaken, cannot be taken away. And so, Father, this morning, as we look at your word, I pray that you uh, would remind us that you are great and wonderful God, that you alone are God, that you would teach us your ways, and that you would help us to walk in your truth. Unite us, unite our hearts, Father, in the fear and trembling of your name, knowing that you alone are good. So we ask that you would do this for the glory of your Son, Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, we are shown an amazing story. Paul and Silas have been thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. They were in the city of Philippi, and in Acts chapter 16, verse 25, the text tells us that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everybody's bonds were unfastened. Well, the result of that moment was that, or I should say, if we go uh, down a little bit uh, to the consequences, is that the Philippian jailer, as well as his entire household, were saved. What we find uh, in Paul uh, is an incredible picture of a man whose faith in Christ was unshakable. He was a man who, who in the midst of his prison, uh, was singing, uh, singing psalms uh, and praying, praying to God. And God did amazing things. Paul's life was uh, one of suffering, but also one of great faith. The glorious grace of Christ had saved him, and so he wanted others to know uh, of that same freedom and assurance of Christ's saving love. And so he was willing to preach the gospel even if it cost him. What we see uh, throughout the letter of Colossians is that same heart on display. Right? He wants them to know the gospel, and he's willing to suffer for it. And so Paul was writing to these believers uh, while he was in prison, this is a church of, of people he'd never met. People he had, uh, maybe a few he'd met, but uh, the majority of people he'd never met, he'd never visited. And so this week we're considering really the end of, it's the very end of the letter uh, to the Colossians. And if we remember, uh, to put the whole thing in perspective, we're going to tie it hopefully together today, is that Paul began in chapter 1, a turn there if you'd like, uh, it might be helpful, uh, he began with a prayer, or partway through, a prayer, uh, starting with Colossians 1, verse 9. And he said, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner, manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And really the rest of the letter is in some ways an unpacking of this prayer. Paul wants them to know, in fact, I would say he wants us to know, that as Christians, we can stand confident and fully assured in Christ. We ought to. Our salvation is secure because of who Christ is, first and foremost. So we look at through the, uh, the text, uh, 115 tells us that, that Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, then 118 says that he is preeminent over all things, things in heaven and things on earth. So who he is and what he has done. He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. It's verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 11. And he's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And then in Colossians 2, 13 and 14, uh, he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So this is the gospel, the transformative gospel of grace. Paul actually describes the gospel in this way. In verse one, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, he says, It is the gospel uh, as Christ in you, the hope of glory. So once again, to put things in perspective, Christ, the preeminent one, in you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And so our response is that of hope and assurance that, that we're firmly grounded with deep roots in this gospel of grace. A response of thanksgiving, a response of, of a changed life are the only two appropriate responses. That's where Paul begins uh, the letter. And that's where he wants the, the Colossians to be as he then talks about how their lives ought to be changed. Recently, actually this last week, a friend showed me a video uh, that she took of her daughter in the Discovery Museum in Milwaukee. And if you haven't been there, uh, part of the museum uh, is uh, an aquarium. So in the aquarium, you're able to, to walk through this huge tank. And so there are, there are windows on either side and on the ceiling and on the floor. If you've ever been there, it's, it, so you're walking through a tube, there's fish all around you. And in the video that she showed me, it was of her three-year-old daughter's reaction to the glass floor. Right? She, she stopped for a second. Right? She, she could see that her older brothers had gone ahead and they had already walked ahead of her, but she was not so sure. As she looked down, it looked just like a, a step going into the water. So she sat down like she was going to get in the water. I don't know what she was thinking, but the thing was, she was not comfortable, it didn't seem, in that video. And you can't blame her, right? Because it didn't look safe. 
It didn't make sense in, in her three-year-old understanding of how the world works. But I think we often act the same way. We understand the truths of the gospel. Everything that was, that was said, that Paul laid out here, we understand all of those truths, but we struggle with living in light of those gospel truths. We might even look at, at uh, older, more mature Christians out ahead of us, living their lives in ways that reflect uh, firm faith. But unless we're growing in Christ, it doesn't look safe. It, it doesn't feel like it's secure. And so we, we struggle. In the letter, then, Paul is trying to build an argument and, and uh, chapter 3, verse 1, he says uh, that we have been raised in Christ, so we should seek the things of Christ. Putting to death what is sinful and putting on the character and love of Christ so that, chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the, to God the Father through him. And so Paul is grounding the believers in the gospel and encouraging them toward greater maturity in Christ. He wants them to see just how much Christ has done for them to radically change who they are and what he, by what he has done. He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God and his will and all spiritual understanding. Right? That was what he prayed at the beginning. So that they could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. He wants them to experience the same joy of bearing fruit in every good work and to experience the awesome wonder of continuing to grow in greater knowledge of God. He wants them to grow into greater maturity. He doesn't want them to waste their lives being afraid to kind of step out onto the glass, to live their lives of faith. He doesn't want them to waste their lives pursuing the things of the world. He calls them to live their lives rooted and grounded in Christ. And so that is the call of a Christian, right? It's to live our lives rooted and grounded in Christ, growing in faith. It's not just for, for older Christians, it's for every Christian. There's an expectancy that if we are indeed rooted and grounded in Christ, that we will be growing and maturing in our faith. And so as we look at these last verses in the text, we see a call to steward our lives with that intentional gospel focus, remembering who we are and what Christ has done to live with an intentional gospel focus. Right? And then there's been a progression right, through the application of the, the book. It's the gospel at work in us, the gospel at work in our church, the gospel at work in our homes and in our work. And now, uh, finally, Paul points us to a ministry of the gospel that's actually going out from us. It's the gospel at work outside of the walls of the church. So our main point for this morning is that God calls those who are saved and maturing in Christ to steward our lives with gospel intentionality. And in Christ, we're called to live a life, first we see, of devotion to prayer. In Christ, we're called to live a life of devotion to prayer. Paul writes in, uh, this is now in chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so we think about this, we think the command must be that we should pray. But that's actually not the command in the text. The command is not that we pray, but the command is that to continue steadfastly, to be devoted to prayer. 
So as Christians, it, it's not just enough that we pray. As, as, that's like a, something we check off. It's to, we're to be devoted to continue steadfastly in prayer. As Christians, we are called to a lifestyle of prayer. Now, the scripture, we see that prayer is hard work. Paul talks about it as laboring. Um, and and uh, yeah, in many ways, we struggle to pray, don't we? Even as a church, our church, we struggle to pray. If we see a problem, we're, we're tempted to just uh, spring into action and look for solutions. Maybe we're tempted to believe that prayer doesn't actually accomplish much. So what's the bother? So sometimes even if we do pray, it's just half-hearted and we give up quickly. But Paul says that we're to continue steadfastly in, problem, uh, in prayer. The problem of prayer or prayerlessness is not a new problem. Right? As Mike read for us, that Jesus told that parable about the persistent widow who kept going back to the judge to give her justice. And in Luke 18, 7, right, Jesus said, and will, God, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them and speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? What does he mean, will he find faith on earth? Well, prayer is an act of faith. It's trusting that a God who we cannot see is listening and cares about us. He cares about our needs. And as we cry out in prayer, we're trusting that he hears us. We're trusting that he loves us. And he wants the best for us and that he will respond. But even in Jesus' parable, what does he say? He says that he told them this parable so that they would, would always pray and not lose heart. So even the, the swift answer that Jesus promises is not necessarily swift according to our timing. I mean, we want to pray and get an answer. right? Imagine having to pray and wait. It's often what causes us to, to stop praying. But Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer and be watchful in it. As Christians, we are called to live a life of prayer, a steadfast devotion to prayer. We're called to live our lives with an intentional gospel orientation in our prayers. Part of that orientation uh, is, of, is praying, going to God with our requests, our burdens, our needs. It's asking God for his help, for courage to say things like no to sin, courage to say yes, to walk in obedience. And so he says to be watchful in our prayers. So as we pray, he tells us to, to pray with our, our eyes open to what's happening around us. Right? Pray that in light of what's happening. So we don't just pray out of a book, but, but be watchful in our prayer. And being watchful it also is a call to not be caught off guard by times of trial or suffering. Think about the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew what was coming. And so in Mark chapter 14, he said, Watch and pray that you might not fall into temptation. So we're called to continue steadfastly in prayer and be watchful in it. 
Our life of prayer is meant to help us to live our lives in constant communication with the God who loves us, rightly giving thanks and credit to God for the work that he has done and that he is doing. Right? As we are in constant prayer, it helps us to, to be watchful to see his handiwork. To give him credit for what he's doing. Oftentimes, God is at work in the midst of us, and yet we, we overlook it completely. And then Paul, though, uh, he says, he, he turns the prayer, uh, the request then to them, and, and he asks the Colossians, in their watchfulness, in their prayerfulness, to pray for him, to pray for Paul. He uh, asking that for God's help in making the gospel known to others. So Paul wants their, them to pray for him. For, uh, verse 3, he says, At the same time, pray for us, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul is asking for them to do is partner with them, partner with him in his work of the gospel. Paul is keenly aware that God's work in the gospel uh, is God's work in the gospel, that Paul can't do the work. God must do the work that he does in the gospel. He's keenly aware of God's work in the gospel, and so he asked the Colossian believers to partner with him by praying for him. He knows that unless God makes the message of the gospel clear, the people who he speaks to will not understand it. Paul is not above asking for prayer for himself, asking for help. He understands that the first steps in talking to others about God is talking to God about others. It's a quote from uh, David Murray. He says, The first step in talking to others about God is talking to God about others. How often when we struggle with the idea of sharing our faith, do we, God, give me courage. That's a good prayer. But how about God open the hearts of others? And so he asked them, he says, ask God to open a door for the word. Once again, that imagery uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of Paul and Silas in prayer uh, while they're in prison, and God miraculously opens the prison doors. Is that what Paul is asking for here? I'm sure he wouldn't mind, right, if he was released from prison. I, I can't help but think that that wouldn't be a bad thing. But I think he is asking here, what he's talking about is God's work of opening both a door of opportunity to share the gospel, right? Paul is a prisoner. He needs people to come to him. And so he's asking for doors of opportunity to be opened that he might share the gospel, and no less miraculously is he asking that God's, uh, God would do his work of opening up the person's heart that was once closed off from the gospel. So as Paul says, pray for me that, uh, that the uh, door will be opened for the gospel, he knows that this is work that he cannot do himself, but a work that God must do. As we think about the gospel in our own lives and sharing the gospel, Think about for a moment, what, it is, what is it that we're, we're asking God to do? What is it that closes the door of the gospel? Right? Is, it, is it we pray it once and it's always open? The answer is no. People's hearts are, are closed, typically, to the gospel. And it, it might be their, their lack of interest 
their lack of uh, an understanding of their need or, or time or even concern over their sin. Right? But people are closed off from the gospel. So we pray that God would open up their hearts to the gospel. But even as we pray for God to open the door, another closed door often in sharing the gospel is our own coldness toward others, our own unbelief, our own doubt or just selfishness toward others. And so we should be committed to praying steadfastly that God would, God would open up opportunities, open hearts, the hearts of others, asking that God would allow them eyes to see the truth of the gospel and, and allowing us to see those opportunities that he presents to us and the courage to get out of our comfort zone and to share with others when those opportunities are presented. Paul also then asked them for clarity. Pray that I would be clear as I share the gospel. And Paul asks, right, Paul's the apostle, right? He, he's a really smart guy. He's really well-educated, right? He wrote a lot of books, wrote a lot of letters. We've got them in the Bible. And yet he asked the Lord, asked them to pray that, uh, that he himself would be clear. We think about if Paul needs help in clarity, if Paul needs help uh, in, in uh, presenting the gospel as he ought to, what about us? What hope do we have? I think we too, it's an encouragement that we should be praying for our own clarity, gaining clarity in both knowing and, and sharing the gospel. So what are the ways that we gain clarity? Well, one is we ask God to help us to be clear, but, but also we have to know the gospel clearly. We've got to know it ourselves. We have to share it on a regular basis. One of the opportunities is right, Out, Outreach Sunday uh, that is happening today. And so what are, we, what are we doing? Right after the service, we're praying for open opportunities. We're praying for clarity. And the people who are, are going to go out, right, they're getting the opportunity to share the gospel as the Lord gives opportunity. Another opportunity that each of us has uh, to practice uh, sharing the gospel, uh, to practice the truths of the gospel, uh, uh, declaring them, is through our family devotions. I think about it, on a weekly basis, we're talking about the gospel and its impact. And we should ask God uh, for his help as we share the gospel in our homes, in family devotions, and while we're out in the community sharing with others who don't know it. But it takes an intentionality, a, a thoughtfulness. It means stewarding our time and our hearts so that other priorities don't push it out. So as Paul uh, asks them for prayer, he's uh, asking them uh, to be devoted to prayer, but he also then talks about intentional wisdom. So call, God calls those who are saved and maturing in Christ to steward our lives with gospel intentionality. So in Christ, we're called to a life of de uh, devotion to prayer and a life of intentional wisdom. Chapter 5 I'm sorry, verse 5, he says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
God is calling us to live our own lives with that intentionality and intentional wisdom before a watching world. So what we say is important, so we pray for clarity, but how we say it is also important because our lives communicate what we believe, communicates our care for others, it communicates who God is. Our witness communicates what we believe about God and who he is and his love for us. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to uh, hear uh, someone who, uh, to preach the gospel, and, and they're preaching it, and maybe they're getting all the facts right, but they're such a jerk, right? That you think, man, I, I don't want to hear this. This isn't right. They might have clarity, but their lives say, I don't even believe this. Others may be very wonderfully warm and gracious, but they lack any clarity. Well, how do we feel about them? Well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Clarity and care communicate the gospel. But if there's a disconnect, right, people can be repulsed by the gospel. So our lives do communicate something, but, but we need to speak the gospel as well. So he says, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom for outsiders. So we walk in wisdom, and then he points to making the best use of our time. Well, what does he mean? He's well, our timing and our care for others communicates God's care. What's it communicate? We can communicate uh, that there's more to life than, than money or entertainment or even our own agenda and our own time. We don't make the best use of the time by being the most efficient, necessarily. Often, efficiency is what drives us away from gospel effectiveness. Imagine you have your whole day planned out and, and God has his, your whole day planned out. So you've got what you want to do in mind and, and you march through your day and you accomplish everything from your checklist and you miss the doors that God has opened to the gospel. Have you made the best use of your time? Probably not. And so it takes a prayer and it takes intentionality. It takes watchfulness, as Paul has encouraged us in, in these passages. When we walk with wisdom by how we use our time, we communicate that there is an eternity to think about. Right? And, and there's a God to submit to, not just our own agenda. In addition, Paul says, uh, let your speech always be seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer each person. So our speech, always gracious. Speech, always be gracious, right? So what does it mean? What is grace? Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. And so in other words, we speak to outsiders, to to non-believers, not as they deserve, not in response to how they speak to us, but in how Christ has spoken to us how Christ is called to us. He says also seasoned with salt. In in the first century, uh, salt was used as a preservative. There's no refrigeration, and so salt was very valuable. It did two things. It, it, It brought out the flavor of, let's say, meat. It also helped prevent decay. And so Paul encourages us that that's how our speech ought to be toward outsiders, gracious and seasoned with salt, 
seeking to encourage and strengthen and speak life into, not to tear down and destroy. And I think we need God's help with this kind of intentionality in our, our both motivation and our ability to speak. Right? Because it's really easy to be angry with someone who's angry with us, to respond in kind. But we're called to, uh, to intentionally live with wisdom before outsiders. You know, have you ever picked up the phone? I'm kind of dating myself a little bit here, but picked up the phone and uh, answered it, which we don't answer our phones unless we know who it is anymore, but just bear with me. So, okay, for those of you who aren't young enough, there used to be phones that were attached to the wall, and it was all you had. You didn't have anything in your pocket. And the phone would ring, and you would not know who it was. And there would not be a robot, a robocall. It would actually be a person Sometimes a salesman trying to sell you something. Right? And you pick up the phone, and uh, what do you hear? They've got something that you need. At least that's the way their script reads. But it's, it was never convincing. And uh, maybe you can look up on YouTube and find examples of this. I don't know. But uh, right? it's this script, and it's not convincing because, number one, there was no relationship. This person's like, I- I've got something you need. Whether it's a set of encyclopedias or, or something else, uh, they were trying to sell you something. But there's no relationship. But also, uh, they might not even be speaking to anything you care about. They may not be speaking to anything that is of concern to you. And so when he says, speak with wisdom toward outsiders, that you may know how to answer each one of them, part of that is knowing the people that we're talking to. One of the things that Les has shared with me is when they go out in the community, what do they ask? How can I pray for you? It's not a, this is not a long-term relationship, but it is one where they're seeking to hear from other people, uh, to minister to them. Right? Because there's one script doesn't match everybody's uh, life and need. We can't just uh, share the, the gospel with one script and think that everyone is going to be convinced by it. Different people have different questions, and our lives, our lives will speak individually to different aspects of the questions that they might have. And your relationship will give you avenues that maybe nobody else will. And so we need wisdom, and really wisdom not just uh, in our relationship, there's wisdom there, not just in hearing from them, not just a, an emotional IQ, but also divine wisdom from God himself, that he will teach us what we ought to say, that he will be leading and guiding the way, that he'll be preparing the person's heart to receive the gospel. God calls those who are saved and maturing in Christ to steward our lives in such a way, to spend our lives in such a way that it's with gospel intentionality that, that we move through our days, through our weeks, And our devotion to prayer is what helps us to live with that intentional wisdom. Our speech communicates what we believe. Our lives communicate what we believe. God is the one who brings clarity to our speech ultimately, gives them uh, a receptivity to the gospel. So in these closing words, right, uh, Paul is laying out in his request to them both a life of devotion to prayer a life of intentional wisdom, and three, a gospel partnership. 
And there's a lot of names in this last section. And there's a lot of specific instructions in this last section. I just want to highlight a few things that we see in Paul's closing words. Paul is, once again, writing to these people that he's never met himself. And so he sends instructions to them, and, and he also sends greetings from people that they know. So one of the things I want to highlight in Paul's closing is Paul is dealing with the various people connected to his own ministry, uh, the, the ones especially connected to the Colossian believers, ones that they know. And as he does so, he, he speaks words of encouragement. He sees all of these people that he's naming as their gospel partners. They are at work for the gospel for the sake of the Colossian believers, either in supporting Paul as he ministers to the Colossians or some uh, in their own labors for the Colossians. But he speaks words of encouragement. Verse 7, he says, Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place. So this encouragement, he said, I sent Tychicus to you so that he might encourage you. He knew Tychicus. Must have been an encouraging guy. And so he sends him with the ministry of encouragement. He also, listen to how he describes him. I mean, Tychicus is there reading this, and, and here Paul says of him, he says that he's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant, or that word is slave, directly translated, in the Lord. So he's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow slave in the Lord, servant in the Lord. He's affirming this work that Tychicus is doing, and he's saying Tychicus is going to tell you all about us, and if you have any questions, you can ask him, and his purpose there is to encourage. And with him, we're also sending Onesimus. I know we've talked about who Onesimus is. He was a runaway slave who had found Paul somehow and had come to faith. Listen to how he describes Onesimus. He says, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. He never once calls him a slave. Faithful and a beloved brother, who is one of you? So here, Onesimus is coming back home, a runaway slave, one who maybe some people think ought to be put back into slavery. Paul doesn't call him a slave. Paul says he's one of you. So Paul's heart is toward encouragement, toward all of these brothers and sisters. He, Paul shows his love for them. by calling them beloved, by, by pointing out their faithfulness, and even by elevating Onesimus in his own standing. Paul also shows his love by including right, a diversity within this list. Right? There's a diversity of churches that, that he is ministering to and speaking of. There's a, a, a diversity of economic classes. Right? You've got Onesimus, a slave, There's also Jews, there's Gentiles, there's men and women. Paul includes all of them as gospel 
ministry partners. And then he exhorts them to, as he exhorts them to encourage others, uh, he, he tells them to welcome missionaries. He tells them to pray for others. And then listen how he describes Epaphras in verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, so he's a guy you know, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heriopolis. What is he praying? He's praying this exact same prayer that Paul began the letter with. Paul's saying that, that Epaphras, he has worked harder for you than anyone. And how has he worked harder for, for them than anyone? Through intentional prayer. And so it gets back to the beginning, right? That Paul is encouraging them as they're growing in Christ to become like he is, to become like Epaphras is. And he's supporting them by his prayers and, and others are supporting them in prayer so that they might grow in maturity. Often when we think about discipleship, uh, we think about growing in our knowledge, which is a good thing. We think about uh, knowing more about the Bible and how to present the gospel, about reading the Bible and uh, learning who God is, right? All wonderful things. But there's one thing that we become a little uncomfortable talking about, and that's how we live out the gospel. That's the implications of the gospel. You look at all of Paul's letters the first half is who we are in Christ. The second half is how we live out our lives now that we are believers. See, Paul's intention is, in show, I think, in, in some of these verses, what we find here is that the life of a believer is one that doesn't simply stay and keep feeding and feeding and feeding and taking in, but one that, that continues to take in and then minister outward. And whether that ministry is toward other believers, whether that ministry is toward taking the gospel to the lost, Paul views the life of a believer as always maturing, always growing in Christ, and always with gospel intentionality, taking the gospel uh, to, to the places it is not known. Whether it's uh, places in our own lives or the lives of our brothers and sisters where darkness still resides. It's encouraging them and strengthening them in their faith. Or it's taking the gospel to, to those we don't know who don't know it. Whether they be our own children that we share the gospel to over and over, week by week, in family devotions. Or to the people that God has placed in your life. You see, when we think about a devotion to prayer, an outward prayer of intentional wisdom and of gospel partnership. You see, God has placed us in a community that we might partner together in this work of the gospel, that we might encourage one another in this work of the gospel. And so just as, as he is encouraging the Colossians in their walk, so we too should encourage and strengthen one another in our walks. Just as he is encouraging them uh, to be devoted to prayer, we should encourage one another to be devoted in prayer. Just as he is encouraging them to walk with intentionality and wisdom toward outsiders, so we should encourage and help one another to do the same. You see, this gospel partnership is not just this modern idea where we get together in a building 
But we are the body of Christ. And he's given, to one, given us to each other for the purpose of building and strengthening each other. And so as Paul closes his letter, as he names all of these brothers and sisters in Christ, what we see is a sense of equality in the gospel. What I mean by that is that he has elevated slaves to be equal brothers and sisters. He has, he has uh, elevated, whether Jew or Gentile, to be equal brothers and sisters in Christ. He's encouraging them to partner with one another for the sake of the gospel because their greatest bond with one another is their shared faith in the gospel. It's what we strive to do in our own church. Right? Uh, we have intentionally intergenerational growth groups we try and mix up, not by affinity, but hopefully uh, some mixture of the, the uh, body of Christ. Why is that? Well, because in heaven, we'll all be around the throne together. Right? It's not like we'll, we'll have the young marrieds over here and, and the kids over here and all these different... We'll all be together around the throne. And so even as the catechism talked about Right? We want to live our lives on earth as we will in heaven. And so one of the ways is by that intentionality within our growth groups of, of loving one another and seeing one another as brothers and sisters in Christ beyond uh, our affinities, beyond the things that we share. This gospel partnership also then is, uh, we're given to one another in this gospel partnership. It's, it's why we support and encourage our missionaries the way that we do. We believe that their work is important and that we, through prayer, through encouragement, even through finances, are partnering with them in their work. So whether they're near or far, with other believers, we are partnered together. As Christians, we are grounded in the gospel, and so therefore our lives are radically transformed, radically changed. And so we're called to a life of devotion to prayer, a life of intentional wisdom, and a life of gospel partnership. I love how Paul closes his letter. Right? What does he say? He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. So often letters uh, of Scripture were written by someone else. So the, uh, Paul probably didn't write all of his letters. I mean, he didn't actually pen them. He probably spoke them, and quite possibly Luke was the one who was penning it down. But here he says, I write this greeting. These words are in my own hand. And what did he want to communicate with that? That this was him and that he cared enough to send them this message. That, that his own hand was there ministering to them, praying for them. And he says, remember my chains. As you pray for me, remember where I am. Not only because I'm willing to suffer for you, but pray for me because I'm in a, a hard place. He tells him to pray for him, to remember him. And then his final words, grace be with you. And these aren't just flippant closings like yours truly, Paul. So no, God's grace be with you. It was a blessing and it was a statement of fact. There's nothing greater that God has given us than his grace. So as Paul closes his letter with that, I want to close our time with that. Grace be to you. Let me pray.
Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ. We thank you that Paul, who was an apostle and, and was very good at what he did in sharing his faith and uh, gave us this example of not only gospel partnership, but, but humbly asking for others to pray for him. I pray that you would be at work in us, causing us to be a praying church, to be a people who are of prayer. And I pray that you would help us uh, to partner together and encouraging one another in this work. Father, Christ is altogether lovely. And I pray that he indeed would be our greatest treasure and that together we might come together and give him glory. Help us to encourage one another when we are feeling low and need our eyes lifted to see Jesus and that we might come together and celebrate with one another our risen Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.